This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall. This time we've got a special episode to celebrate the second issue of our quarterly print journal, available now. First, we've got a conversation with Jeff Nicholson, who contributes a piece on the art of traveling without traveling. Then Colin Dickey reads from his piece in the issue, which, well, if you heard our interview with Matt a few podcasts ago, you know that all description is here doomed to fail. Enjoy. It is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall coming to you from the famous Hollywood Hills, where I'm speaking with Jeff Nicholson, who is an author of fiction and nonfiction, an author of many books, including most recently in the fiction column, Gravity's Volkswagen, and coming up soon this year, The City Under the Skin. In the nonfiction column, depends on where you live. In the U.S., the most recent book is Walking in Ruins. In the U.K., no, wait. In the U.S., the most recent book is The Lost Art of Walking. In the U.K., the most recent book is Walking in Ruins, which I was just in London browsing at Waterstones. Hope that comes out here soon. You can read his, I suppose it's the most newly published thing he's had in the States, in the new issue of the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Print Journal. It's an article on traveling without traveling. Is that how you describe this tradition? So the the, uh, the piece is kind of inspired um, by a book called... Um Traveling in Place by a, a German academic called Bernd Stiegler. And it is subtitled A History of Armchair Travel, which I think doesn't quite get it because armchair travel sounds to me like someone sits in front of the, the fire with the, the logs blazing away and, and sort of reads, um, you know, reads great travel literature. It's a vicarious um, travel is what that seems to mean usually, right? Yes. Um, and this book is more about people who travel deeply without going anywhere and i guess the the number one i mean the ur text on this is uh, de maestra's uh, a voyage to the end of my room um in the story which people either know or they don't de maestra was um, under house arrest he'd fought a duel and presumably he'd won, although I've never been able to quite work out whether that's the case. Um, so he was under house arrest for 47 days, um, and the book has 47 chapters. And he explores his room as though he's exploring a brand-new country or continent. Um, and he has he has little riffs, and you know he describes the paintings on the wall, and he describes his own feelings as he walks around the room. And, I mean, I find this sort of enormously, um, I mean, compelling and interesting. Um, and the way, the way it sort of affects me is that I, I think I suffer both from sort of claustrophobia and agoraphobia. Um, I mean, that when I'm at home, as, as I am now, uh, it takes quite a lot to get me out, mm. you know, that... Um, and I think that's, that I do think that's a very LA kind of thing. It takes but, a big walk to get you out. I can tell you that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I suspect that you know, in the Hollywood Hills, there are any number of kind of lonely, strange shut-ins like <laughs> me. Um, so it takes quite a lot to get me to get me going. But as is the as is the nature of inertia, once I get going, once I leave the house, mm-hmm. once I start moving, going on a journey, um, I never really want to come home. Mm. It's the thin end of the wedge, I think of it as being. You You get the thin end of the journey's wedge in, in your mind, into your writing, what have you, 
and there you are. There, there you go, rather. There you, there you aren't because you're someplace else. Yeah, and I mean, and there is a kind of, um, I suppose the word might be domophobia, a kind of fear of home. You know that you. That would be Paul Theroux's disease, if to go by how you describe him in his writing, which I've read some, not all of. Yeah. Uh, He's, he's got a big library, uh, but you referenced that in, in your piece. There is this tradition, um, I mean, and of course it's, uh, Theroux is, is, is American, although he spent a lot of time in, in England, that something sort of seemed to happen in the, what we call it, early 80s, mid 80s, and you had this great um, avalanche of, Writers who, in, in other circumstances, might have been novelists or poets or, or even screenwriters. And there was a market for books, um, books of travel. Um, so you, you had through, especially through on, on trains, and you had um, oh, Bruce Chatwin going, going everywhere. Um, and even I managed to get a, a contract to write a travel book, a book called Day Trips to the Desert. Mm. And th- there did seem to be this... I mean, it was a time when people were not only traveling, but they were interested in, in the idea of traveling. Right. Conceptually, travel was also hot. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's gone. I mean, I think that people... Travel writing, per se. Yeah. I mean, that you know, you might write a, a memoir about your travel um, and how you, became, mm-hmm. how you became who you are by, by way of travel. But, um, you know... A, a, a young writer who decides he wants to travel on the Orient Express and write about it. I think he'd struggle to get a to get a contract for that. I mean, having said that, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's doing it right now. But you couldn't do it like it's been done before. It's it's one of those things that the the idea I want to go someplace and write about it stays the same, but no longer can you write it as travel writing. No longer can you write it the way that Paul Theroux would have or any of his predecessors. I feel like when I Meet up whenever I meet up with the writer Pico Iyer, who's often marketed oh, as a travel writer, and we talk about this because uh, some of the writing I do is like what he does. Not to compare myself to a more advanced writer than I am, but uh, the writing of place is a term he prefers to travel writer, and that's what the way I always frame it. Talking to him, does that more general umbrella does that cover something still possible? Writing of the writing of place does it mean anything to you? Well, I mean, Pico's the man, right? I mean, yeah. he's yeah, given that, given, <laughs> given that he's the man, and you know, and that that so many of his, you know, a, a lot of his chapters or paragraphs sort of start out, you know, I was stepping down from the train in yeah. Timbuktu or whatever, and, and you know, and, conversation, and, the same, the same thing holds, right? And of course, that, that that's that's enormously attractive. Um, I mean, as a novelist. Um, I mean, all novels have to take place somewhere, um, even if it's an, an imaginary somewhere, if, right. even if it's an invented, um, invisible city. Um, and the, the, the place where it takes place tends to t- determine the kind of story it can be. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, you can have a fantasy London, and everybody has their own version of London, right. but, you know, you can't have a London with monorails because <laughs> yeah, there aren't right. any. Uh, London has no space needle. And it has other, it has newer eccentric buildings, though. Yeah, and and L.A., you know, um, L.A. does indeed have a subway system that yes. no one. I mean, the, the, I'm on it. Well, I mean, the great, uh, the, the great L.A. subway system novel is is uh, just waiting to be written. <laughs> one of the first writers who I discovered for myself, um, you know, when I was fairly young, was Jack Kerouac, and he's. 
um, he's a novelist of place, but he's also a novelist of moving on. That wherever he is, he needs to to make the the next the next step, the next mm-hmm. journey. Um, and I I find that very attractive too. I mean, Kerouac was, you know, a very early enthusiasm of mine. And sometimes, you know, those early enthusiasms tend to fade away. You think you've grown out of them. Mm. Um, and although I certainly don't have the same kind of um, passion, if you like, for Kerouac's writing, whenever I go back to him, you know, I see exactly why I was excited mm-hmm. by him. Um, and we were we were talking about um, a, a movie made of... Um, I mean, a movie called Beat, but I mean, they, they, they've made a, a bunch of movies. They've tried to make a bunch of movies about Kerouac <laughs> or based on Kerouac's book, and they never seem to work. Mm. Um, and I'm guessing um, it's something to do with the voice. I mean, that you, you don't read Kerouac for the plot, per se. You read it for the for that tone, that, that, that narrative voice. You read it for what a film can't, by definition, capture. Exactly. Mm. Um and having said that, I mean, one of the other authors who you know, excited me when I first started writing was, was Samuel Beckett, who seems to be a man who, you know, his characters rarely go anywhere. I mean, obviously, um, Waiting for Godot, they're there on stage, so traveling on stage is always a problem. But, you know, I like those really um, very minimalist uh, works like Lessness, which is about, you know, People in a ruined landscape, and they they make one step, and that's that's the journey. The journey they stay where they are, but making one step is as much of an effort and as much of a journey as you know as traveling to Timbuktu. And we're talking about something that we're talking about a form that is less about taking a journey than treating whatever you took as a journey. Would that sum Would that sum that up? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, all books, in some sense, take you on a journey. Um, you know, whether it's a metaphoric journey or a kind of spiritual journey. Um, and um, John Gardner says that there. I mean, you know, we know that there are seven plots, or there's one plot, or whoever. Uh, John Gardner says there are, there are only two plots. One is a man goes on a journey, and the other one is a stranger comes to town. Yes. And of course, in some cases, that's the same thing. That the, the man on the man yeah. who's on the journey is the stranger. That's on who you are, the reader. Yeah, and um, I mean that seems there seems to be something absolutely fundamental about literature. I mean, from the uh, from the Odyssey onwards, that the man goes on the journey, uh, and I guess it's usually a man, isn't it? The the great female. Odyssey has yet to be written um, and has adventures and comes back. And I guess it's there again in, well, it's there everywhere, but I was thinking of, um, you know, the, the troubadours, the songs, as I went out one morning, they set off on a journey and something happens. That you know, The journey enables them to experience something, to have an experience that they wouldn't have if they if they stayed at home. I mean, the, the, the picaresque, I guess, that... You know, it makes me think of an interview I read of Haruki Murakami, the famous Japanese novelist. A few years ago, he said, it was an interview about his travels and his writing. He doesn't write about travel in English anyway, but he does travel a lot. He writes in different places, and he says that each the act of actually writing a novel is like a journey in and of itself. He doesn't really see a difference between the journey you take to a place and the journey into your own mind or subconsciousness, whatever you want to call it, that writing a novel is. Do you think there's any truth to that in, in your writing? The sense in which it does seem to resemble it is that 
um, certainly with novels, novels far more than with non-fiction, that when you start, when I start, I think I have a pretty clear idea of where I'm going. Um, and almost, not almost, inevitably, inevitably in, every, in every single case, um, I don't end up where I thought I was ending up. I mean, I'm heading in the right direction. And, um, you know, I finish up somewhere else, which is what all great travelers do and, and, and would want to do. Um, and I was thinking about Spalding Gray, um, you know, swimming to Cambodia. And he has trouble, he's interested or he, he writes some monologues about how you know that, that the journey's over. And there are various points in that, uh, in, in swimming to Cambodia, where he's looking for the end, he's looking for that perfect moment that will say, "That's it. That's the climax. That means I can go home now." Um, and I mean, a novel slightly different because you know you can make it up. You don't have to. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to experience it. But you do have to find it. You know, you do have to. You do have to search around to make that discovery that says. You know, this is the ending, and it's a real ending, and it's not a forced ending, um, that it's organic and completes the journey. It, you don't necessarily finish up back where you started, although, although sometimes you do. Um, and that, you know, that, that there's always something serendipity, serendipitous about it, that, you know, if you go on vacation, you know, even in the most modest way, and you have exactly the time that you think you're going to have, what well, you know, what's what's the point of that? Um, you know, you do want to discover, you know, at the very least, a new place, a new restaurant, and you know, on the on the higher level, you want to find out something about the place itself, or you know, or obviously about yourself. And what has this book taught you about the potential that remains in traveling, without traveling? I mean, it makes me want to. It makes me want to write a novel about it. Yes. Frankly, yes. Um, uh, if I can, can I just look through and, and see what the, some what some of the inspirations in here are? Um, I mean, Peter Hanke, who again was an, an early enthusiasm of mine. I mean, a continuing enthusiasm. You know, he goes to La Défense in Paris, and uh, he's interested in it as, as being sort of a non-place, sort of their Bunker Hill. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I like, I, mean, I love the desert. I love walking around in the desert and, you know, driving in the desert. And so many people think that, that the desert is a non-place. And, and for me, it's, it's very much not. Um, but I mean, I find the same in London or, or in LA that, uh, I mean, in London particularly, I guess that LA doesn't, doesn't have the sort of, I mean, the, it, it's, I read this um, this list of the ten most disappointing tourist attractions in the world, <laughs> and the Hollywood Walk of Fame is like num number one or two. And, I can and, vouch for that. I mean, uh, I've never been there as a tourist, but I can only imagine. Exactly, and you know, you do occasionally. Um, I walk there occasionally, and you do see these people looking sort of baffled and blank. You know, I mean, they're still taking pictures. Yeah, yeah, and I always look to see who they're taking photographs. You know, whose stone they're they're taking pictures of, and they're never the they're never the ones that you know you'd think they would be. Yeah. Um, so where was that? Yeah. So I mean, the, this idea of exploring um, a non-place or a place that 
it's not if not unknown undiscovered or thinking about a place in a in a different way that seems to be where what well, seems to be where any what any writer would wish to do anyway um but you know writing a travel book about london seems a pretty impossible task at it, this point it does you know i was as as i may have mentioned i was in london and recording interviews with people, many of whom write books about London, many of whom have written several books about London, and I will go to the Waterstones, say, where I was reading your book, uh, Walking in Ruins, which is not a London book, but then you see there is this whole shelf of London books, this table London books, this industry that's been chugging along for so long of London books. And I, I mean, I guess I, I can't disapprove because I like to read London books, but at the same time, I wonder what the difference is. London keeps inspiring books. Los Angeles has inspired some very solid books, books I love reading again and again. It kind of stopped doing that in volume about 20 years ago. I mean, you've written about Los Angeles yourself. What, what do you think the state is of Los Angeles writing right now? Not to get too grand, but I, and I don't mean anything, any writing involving Los Angeles. I mean the writing of place where Los Angeles is the place. Well, in Sinclair, in his new book, um, most recent book, American Smoke, does manage to get to Los Angeles. And I think it defeats him completely. He's kind of. He wouldn't be the first one, I'm afraid. No. Um, and he's kind of reduced to observing that people don't walk much in Los Angeles, and, and he also finishes up. You know, quoting his taxi driver, and this is the absolute. You know, this this is the travel writer kind of tearing his hair out, and you know, what am I doing? Um, but then once he starts talking about um, the hotel where he stays, which is the Sunset Tower Hotel, and you know, he starts he discovers that Mamie Van Doren used to take her boyfriends there in the afternoon and kind of auditioned them and some measured up to the standards and some didn't. And am I right that um, I'm thumbing through rather desperately. Um, someone kept a cow on the balcony of one of the rooms and I'm as I look at it, I think it's John Wayne. Does that, does that sound plausible? Well, anything sounds plausible here, as you've discovered. Oh, well, we'll, 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 we'll check on that. We'll do some, we'll do some notes later. Um, and that sort of, I mean, I quite, I mean, personally, I, I rather like books that sidle up to a subject that don't sort of meet it head on. The reasons, the things that I noticed when I first came to LA, and that, that were certainly not the reasons why I came here, um, although, I, I mean, I instantly loved them, and I loved them as a tourist, I mean, was obviously the architecture. The, I mean, both the mid-century and the dingbats and the uh, programmatic. That was, you know, very obvious. Um, I loved the old cars, the classic cars, although I get the feeling there aren't as many around as there were 10 years ago. Well, there must not be. I mean, well, yeah, they, they fail, by, defini yes. by definition. But it seems like, I mean, it's car culture. I mean, car culture will never disappear from L.A., but it doesn't seem to be... I think people have a certain guilt about, uh, you know, driving their V8 that takes six, <laughs> that, you know, that gets six miles to the gallon, e even in LA. Could be. It may be generational as well. I mean, a 65 year old, I think, will drive that V8 to their grave, especially if they grew up in Los Angeles, just because that's, that's what life is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's an old lady at my supermarket who drives a, early 1960s mercury and she certainly looks as though she's had it since <laughs> you know um, you know since she was a young woman i mean and i really admire that i mean I, i'm much more i feel much more affection for some 
but from some old lady driving her 60s car than I do for some hipster driving his, his 60s car. Uh, and, and then, and the other thing that, um, I was kind of slow to, to really appreciate was, for want of a better word, the, the flora of, of Los Angeles. Um, I mean, I'm not enough of a botanist to know what is and what isn't native. Um, much of it, I'm, I'm guessing, isn't. And of course, the palm trees are the first things. But, you know, everybody notice, notices the palm trees. And then, you know, you start to look at the, the, the cactuses and the euphorbia. And of course, you know, the horror of the, uh, of the lawn, the horror, the yes. horror of the, the Los Angeles okay. lawn, which I mean, presumably are dying even as yeah. we speak. Given well, that, luckily, they're turning brown as, as we are talking, yeah, as you say. Given that we're in the middle of a drought. And, you know, and hooray. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've also found in LA, I mean, largely thanks to the LA, or partly. Unless well, I largely <laughs> due to the LARB, you know, that there is this very vibrant literary culture um, at the LARB, um, Black Clock magazine. Um, briefly, there was Slake, and um, although I know a few, I mean, because it, it's a company town, so you, you you do get involved with people who are involved with the movies, who write movies. But that's no part of the reason why I found myself in L.A. Mm. And what did bring you here? Oh, it's very straightforward. My wife. <laughs> um, we were living in uh, in New York. And although I loved, although I liked New York, I didn't love it, you know. Um, she and I had had a kind of transatlantic courtship, mm. which was I was still going backwards and forwards, and that was just about possible in New York. Um, and then she got the offer of a job, I mean, in book publishing, of all things, in L.A. And you add those five hours on, and it gets to be a little bit troublesome. It gets to be impossible. Um, I had always had the fantasy about living in L.A., although, of course, the fantasy is nothing like the reality. Would you say you had the English fantasy of living in Los Angeles? Ooh, uh, well, I mean, I do get the heebie-jeebies when I, when I set foot in Santa Monica. And <laughs> yes, I, I, it's still an English colony, actually. It's still just English colony. And, and those, um, you know, those stores that sell Marmite and uh, <laughs> you know, English tea biscuits, that, that does give me a slight shudder. Um, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that I can, uh, you know, that I can go native in this town. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I get all my Englishness when I'm in England, when I'm when I'm in L.A., I want to be uh, I want to be an Angelina. You touch on an idea that I was talking to another Englishman about. Not again, not an Englishman in England, not an Englishman here either. I don't know if he's ever been here, but Jonathan Meads. Um, I was in France talking to him, and this idea you mentioned, not in the context of him, but he is always saying you write about a place, you talk about it on TV like he does, uh, and you invent that place. When you're writing about a place, you are placemaking, not in the sense of urban design, but you're literally, you make a new place with a relationship to the place as it is. Does that idea resonate with you personally when you're writing? Yeah, I mean, very much so. Um, I mean, I suppose my, my big hit in England was Bleeding London, yeah. which is an invention, uh, is an invented London. Um, I mean, fairly close to the reality and fairly close to some of my own experiences. Um, but I don't know what it would mean to literally describe. I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that you could literally recreate London in a novel. Um, 
writing is always about recreating the universe in, in your own image. Um, and, you know, so you, you would have, um, you know, Ian Sinclair's London or Will Self's London or Charles Dickens' London. And it seems in that sense there are an infinite number of possible Londons that, you know, anyone who, anyone who's worth their salt creates their own. And, uh, and who would want it any other way? But I mean, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Jonathan Meads. I mean, he, he seems not to be much known in, in the States. Is that, is that fair? I was telling him to come to America and do a show about the American landscape, but he doesn't seem to want to. He wants to do Buenos Aires, though, which sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, um, he used to, um, there was one of these, there's one of these features in some, I mean, I keep scrapbooks, like some sort of, I suppose there is now, a, a, I suppose there's now an online equivalent of scrapbooks. Uh, maybe a Pinterest, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And um, there was some kind of, um, it, it, anyway, it was Jonathan Mees writing about his shed. <laughs> and there was this picture of him, you know, wearing his suit and, and tie as, as he does. And he's standing in this, in this garden. And there's this gorgeous, you know, rustic, in my memory, anyway, um, this bright blue painted shed. And, you know, I, I'm not a very envious person by and large, but man, I did want, I did want that shed. I really do want it. But of course, now he lives in, uh, in a Corbusier building, right? Yes, and, he lives in the, I don't know French, but Unité d'Habitation, something like that. Um, but yes, he does live in the Corbusier building in, in Marseille. But that shed, what about the shed that, what did he make? What, what did the shed, as he described it, the shed he was creating make you want about it? I mean, it was the rustic nature of it. Mm-hmm. It was that, that idea of, I mean, I think a, a, I used to have a friend in England who said, always said, a man needs a shed. <laughs> That's an yeah. English thing to say, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, well, he was, a, he was a kind of toy maker, automaton maker, mm-hmm. and he would withdraw from the house and, you know, he'd sit at his bench and carve wood, mm-hmm. um, but he also had a, a barrel of cider in there. And I'm asking, it's, it's the man cave, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I live in this rather pleasant, bright house, but I actually do most of my writing in a little dark room downstairs, <laughs> and that seems to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, Sensory deprivation. Well, I mean, I, I, I've always said I think I can write anywhere, mm-hmm. but, you know, I don't need a, a specific environment, and yet I imagine that you know, sitting in the wide open spaces on a beach, that would be absolutely crippling. I can't, I can't imagine that as a, you know, as, as a fruitful, as, as an enjoyable environment. Now, I mentioned you have a new novel on the way this year. We'll, we'll get it soon. The City Under the Skin. What can you, what can you tell readers about it that will, uh, sort of prime the pump here, that will tantalize them about The City Under the Skin? Well, I mean, it is, it, it is. It is set in, in a mythical city, um, which is clearly, it's clearly not LA and it's clearly not London. Um, I think people reading the book, it was a difficult book to, to get published. Um, a lot of people seem not to get it or they seem to want to build, you know, publishers wanted it to be something else, some different kind of book. And there it is. I'm reading it now, just in case you need to uh, reference it. Um, and some people, some some editors, saw it as a European city and thought it should be made more European. You know, it should be turned into London or Rome. Um, and some people very saw saw it very much as a, a genuine American city, like you know, um, a kind of faux Baltimore or, <laughs> or, or a place I've never been. Um, but I mean, I'm told by 
you know, by, by publishers that this idea of setting a novel in a kind of mythical city is quite common. They get a lot, they get a lot of, uh, books over their transom. Um, that Not are another like, mythical city. <laughs> and they say, um, that these are, these rarely work. So, uh, Can they say why? Just that you don't believe in it. You don't believe in the city. Um, so I mean, I'm not saying this in order to. You know, if you can't believe the place, you can't necessarily believe the book, then. Yeah, I, I guess that's the. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to know how, how publishers and editors feel, but, uh, and I, you know, and I'm not just sort of self-aggrandizing, but I mean, it does seem as though somehow I got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. The one thing I absolutely didn't want to do was to write a kind of mid-Atlantic novel that was kind of, um, you know, an Englishman's version of an American city. So there's been an awful lot of trying to hammer it down and get rid of my Englishness yeah. in the book, if not in, if not in me myself. <laughs> um, but basically, one of the things I, I realized uh, while writing Bleeding London was that if you have a, for want of a better word, a thriller plot, um, it's possible to hang all kinds of eccentric, weird, interesting stuff on it. It's just like if you have travel writing, you can write any kind of essay you want, as long as it's basically place-based at its first paragraph. Yeah, I mean, and there, um, the, the obsessions, which are, which are largely mine, are about cities and mm-hmm. urban exploration mm-hmm. um, and maps, in this case. But it seemed very important, and my editor kind of, you know, kept <laughs> nailing me to the wall and saying, yeah, that's okay, you, um, you know, you can do all the eccentric stuff, but the thriller plot kind of has to work. Yeah. So, I mean, to the extent that it's a literary thriller, you know, I found the literature, the literary bit comparatively easy, mm-hmm. and the thriller plot just, you know, just a nightmare. <laughs> and, you know... And the one thing I didn't want to do was, you know, to write a postmodernist. You know, the mystery is there. There is no mystery. That, 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 that's 500 a, pages into it. Yeah, that seemed, that was doomed. Um, but in terms of the plot, I mean, that what happens is that women start appearing all over the city. And they have maps tattooed on their back. And no one knows what the maps mean. I mean, that's, that I guess is the first, the first mystery. Um, and, you know, part of the, my map interest is that maps are never really universal. You always have to understand the map. They're always encoded in a certain way. You have to understand the grammar of maps. Mm-hmm. And even the most obvious maps have to be learned. Um, maps don't mean everything to everybody and certain maps don't mean anything to except to very very few people so that so that the first you know the first question that the book presents is what are these maps of are they a map of this city are they a map of another city is it a mythical city is it no city um does it represent a journey a route to travel um and i and you know and the various characters are Fascinated by this one way or another, um, I think that's probably that's probably enough plot. And certainly, I'll have you back on when the novel is available. We can talk about it in depth in a full length interview. But as well, what what are we missing in the U.S. Uh, with uh, not getting walking in ruins? I mean, I can tell I can tell my countrymen we're missing a lot of writing on, for example, 
um, urban walking in Los Angeles. What, what else is in there? Well, I mean, one of the discoveries I made, um, I mean, when you're a walker, when you have some reputation as a walker, as apparently I do, um, you always get stuck with the people who ask you, what's your favorite walk or what's your favorite walking journey? And, you know, I, I try to be honest, but I find that a really excruciatingly difficult question. Um, and the other half of it is that very often when people ask you that question, they want you to kind of recommend a route. You know, they say, you know, go around one, you know, one side of the Thames and not the other side of the Thames. Um, and, you know, a bit of me is this sort of Zen person who says, you know, the walk you're doing is, is the walk, you know, the most important. Uh, which I mean, I, I do actually believe, but it's not very satisfactory as a, as an answer. Um, but I think what I, what I discovered, um, you know, I mean, I, I love walking in great cities and in, you know, areas of great natural beauty, but I'm at least as happy and sometimes kind of happy, happier, um, you know, poking around in, in what we might call edgelands, you know, the places where the city kind of runs out, mm. um, you know, places of scrapyards and ruined factories and uh, redundant industrial buildings. It's about 15 miles wide here. <laughs> well, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, um, and I came, I mean, I was born in Sheffield, which is a, an big, in, it was a steel town in the north of England. And as I grew up, the steel industry died. So you had, again, acres and acres of, um, of ruin. And, and Sheffield had also been bombed during World War II. And I was still, uh, you know, I was born just sufficiently long ago that there were still bomb sites. There, there were places where bombs had, been, had fallen and, and nothing had been rebuilt. And so, so whether that is part of my interest and my obsession. So on the one hand, you know, I was, again, I suppose, like, like Peter Hanke, I was quite interested in this idea of non-place or, you know, I say edgelands is, is the best, the best word I can come up with. Um, places that aren't quite country, aren't quite city, um, that aren't, yeah, that may be wastelands, but I kind of quite like them to be, to have some kind of human presence. You know, the, the house that's been abandoned, the house that's been burned out, the factory that's, um, that obviously employed people and is then, you know, and that, you know, it's not just wallowing in, in ruin and destruction for its own sake. I mean, the pleasure is to, I mean, to feel that. I mean, I, I am a melancholy kind of a fellow, I guess. And I do like that, that business of, you know, you look at a house and you think, you know, who lived here and they must have moved out and maybe they moved out in a hurry. And in the case of some ruins, they, off, they left stuff behind. I mean, you see this a lot in the desert. Um, you know, these little, cabins and shacks in the Mojave where, you know, people left part of their lives behind. Yeah, there's always the children, some children's toys, there's always some shoes, you know. Um, and, I mean, it's, you know, you'll never know, I will never know, but, you know, there's this, um, this imaginative, uh, you know, attempt to understand what went on there. I mean, maybe there is something, you know, of the novelist, the fiction writer about that. Gets you looking for the ghosts metaphorically, I guess, or literally if you're of that bent as well, but the, the, the quote-unquote ghosts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm more in favor of the, of the metaphoric <laughs> ghosts than the, than the real ghosts, yes. but um, 
<laughs> but also, I mean, that ruin is constantly... I mean, you don't have to go very far. You know, we can, we can walk down to Hollywood Boulevard two, two miles away and, uh, and find some ruin. And, you know, ruin is always changing. Um, there was a house very close to here, which uh, was in a, you know, an, an incredible state. This was built on the top of a, of a slope. And I was imagining it would gradually fall down the hill. <laughs> and I didn't go by it for three or four months. Um, when I went there, it had been restored. You know, it had been, it had been gentrified. Um, so I guess, you know, you're, well, of course, you know, if you, if you live in a house, it's always, it's always falling into ruin one way or another. Right. Um, I mean, in this town, you know, the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings seem to be in a state of constant collapse and ever <laughs> drifting towards towards entropy. Mm. Uh, so, when you're writing about writing or reading about place now, do you want to see the definition of place widened or push out the definition of place yourself to places readers wouldn't have necessarily thought about as places they would be reading about? Uh, I, mean, I don't think of it as a mission, but... Um, but do you want to see it when you're reading? Yes. I mean, one of my favorite books is um, the Alberto Manguel Dictionary of um, Imaginary Places. And I, I feel sort of slightly conflicted about that book because, you know, he, he writes it as a travel guide for imaginary places. And, and in some in some cases, he actually does draw maps. And... There is a bit of a tradition of maps in books, Treasure Island, yeah. and um, you know children's books. And there used to be those Dell uh, mysteries where you know they'd have a little map on the back. Do you know the ones I mean? <laughs> I think I do. And you know, the, the, there'd be the vicarage, or, you know, and, and the, the beach where the body was found. Mm. Um, and somehow I, I find that kind of slightly gets in the way because you know you want to imagine it for yourself. You know, you don't need um, you don't need the illustration to show you. You know that. That in itself is sometimes kind of making it too concrete or too right. specific. When it but, conflicts with your imagination, the illustration doesn't necessarily win. Yeah, I mean the, the imagination has to has to win. Um, but let's say, um, I mean, let, let's talk. I mean, coming back to the uh, to travel writing, um, I think I say this in the, in the piece in the LARB. Um, I went to um, Australia. But I, I got a commission to write a book that uh, involved me going to Australia. And, I mean, unwisely, probably, as it turned out, I read uh, Bruce Chatwin's Song Lines um, before I went. And, I mean, a lot of people have argued whether the Song Lines is really a travel book or a novel or, you know, a flight of fantasy by Chatwin. Um, but I think the very first page, or something the first chapter, he describes um, Alice Springs. And I could absolutely see Alice Springs from this description. Mm. And when I got there, you know, it didn't resemble it in any way. It was, you didn't actually see the guys in the high socks getting out of their Range Rovers all day on the parched grid or whatever he said? That's exactly what he said. Um, <laughs> Were they just missing those guys? Or, it just was, well, like, or was it something you could tell, oh, this has no resemblance on any level no. to what he was saying? I mean, I think, you know, you would see... Um, um, I couldn't swear that I saw the guys in white socks, although, you know, it is an amazing thing that you do find in Australia, particularly the Northern Territory. Um, yeah, the white socks and the shorts, uh, it seems hard to believe. And there certainly are, there's no shortage of, of Range Rovers, uh, uh, land, land, land cruisers, aren't they? Land cruisers. Yeah. Um, 
and you know, it's my it's my own fault. I, I imagined it too uh, too fully or too uh, too narrowly. And, you know, uh, this is not really a criticism of, of Chatwin. It's, it's more of a criticism of me. But um, sometimes, you know, books give you such a, a very clear idea of what a place looks like. Um, I mean, Raymond Chandler, I guess. Uh, I mean, some of his descriptions are, are so detailed. Uh, you can see them. But, um, you know, in fact, a lot of his description is very, you know, that thing he places things not quite where they are, and that the building that's supposed to have seven stories only has six stories. It's literally Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles. Exactly, exactly. And you know, and as I say, you wouldn't want it any other way. Mm. Um, and that sometimes, if a book is too precise, um, it doesn't leave any room for for the reader to to get in there and imagine. I've been speaking here in the Hollywood Hills with Jeff Nicholson. He has several, depending on how you look at it, new books in the UK. You can read Walking in Ruins. You can read here uh, The Lost Art of Walking, which is currently the most the most new, the newest nonfiction book. Also, The City Under the Skin, coming out soon this year. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Stay tuned, listeners. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, our second special for the second issue of our print quarterly journal. Don't press stop. The Arctic archipelago of Svalbard is largely desolate, with just a few thousand people spread across its bleak terrain. The main settlement is a town called Longyearbyen. At just over 2,000 residents, it's the world's northernmost town with a population of more than 1,000 people. Once it was a thriving coal settlement, now the decaying wood ruins of past mining operations hover like ghosts, and the town has largely become a tourist hub home to a cruise ship terminus, hotels, museums, including one devoted entirely to aeronautical attempts to overfly the North Pole in balloons, and farther into the valley, an art gallery, where I found on exhibition during my stay there a collection of old Arctic maps. Filling three full rooms, they laid out the sporadic evolution of how we have come to know the Arctic Circle from medieval maps that presumed fictitious islands and hearsay continents, to early modern projections both more detailed and more honest in their ignorance, their carefully drawn coastlines eventually giving way to indistinct outlines, and then to white space, legended, the frozen sea, or parts unknown. To fill these blank spaces, mapmakers added flourishes and elaborate illustrations, In one, labeled a map of the North Pole and parts adjoining, trappers and whalers hunt sea creatures somewhere between whales and walruses. In another, a bearded cherub points to a name, Spitsberga, emblazoned on a shield supported by a pair of whiskered fish. Above the legend of a map of Novaya Zemla, a hunter pulled on a sledge by a leaping reindeer takes aim with his bow at a raring bear while below him men carry dead walruses like sacks of potatoes and women milks horned goats. Others still have darker images, not just idyllic scenes of hunters and prey, but strange lion-headed fish, scaly whales and with dual blowholes, and on one a walrus with a human face and hair, a sea morse described as big as an ox. 
Among those who took aim at these fantastical beasts was Sir Thomas Brown, who sought to dispel myths and long-held errors in his encyclopedic Pseudodoxia Epidemica, writing, for example, of seahorses, meaning not the small fish in the genus Hippocampus, but the full-sized aquatic steeds often depicted in atlases. Brown comments that they are but grotesco delineations which fill up empty spaces in maps, and mere pictorial inventions, not any physical shapes. The monster, he suggests, is the illustrator's equivalent of the cartographer's parts unknown. A century after Brown, Jonathan Swift made a similar comment in his 1733 lyric on poetry, A Rhapsody. So geographers in Afric maps with savage pictures fill their gaps, and o'er uninhabitable downs place elephants for want of towns. But I've always been more, far more intrigued with these strange shapes and figures, with these seeming afterthoughts, than with the rest of the map. For some time I've studied medieval marginalia, the way monks and other copyists would de decorate holy scriptures and other literature with body images of nuns breastfeeding monkeys, mare creatures shooting arrows into men's asses, rabbit funerals in which foxes acted as pallbearers. The images on the maps in Svalbards weren't as quite as inscrutable, but they did work to interpret the landscape differently than the maps they adorned, telling a narrative alongside the map's spatial translation of the world. Such marginalia is for the most part long dead. On a web page, there may be peripheral images, ads, or other visual interference, but there's not the same sense of empty space that needs filling, no epistemological need to doodle away the white void. A web page is always exactly as big or small as it wants to be. A printed page, or a map on the other hand, sometimes it has extra space, and what artists have chosen to put in that space can mean a great deal the visual ornamentation, framing the information, and directing the eye. I left Longyearbyen aboard a ship that would take me up the western coast of Svalbard. I was there in the company of 25 other artists, writers, and scientists as part of a residency called the Arctic Circle. For two weeks, we lived on a three-masted sailing ship that took us through fjords and open water in a barely inhabited world. During that time, I thought some of Nagelfar, the nail ship described in the 13th century prose Edda, a ship from hell made from the finger and toenails of the dead. At the end of the world, the wolf's skull will swallow the sun and his brother Heidi the moon, and the stars shall vanish from the sky. In the midst of a cataclysm, the Nagelfar shall be set loose and bring the dead to the land of the living for the great and final battle. As the prose Edda warns, if a man die with unshorn nails, that man adds much material to the ship Nagelfar, which gods and men were fain to have finished late. I also thought of monsters, of how ancient sailors looked at the backs of whales, the remnants of squid, or perhaps a narwhal tusk, and saw in them horrors, terrifying menaces. As we sailed out into open waters, into an endless barrage of punishing waves that sickened half the passengers, I thought of those horrible creatures lurking in the open white of those old maps, a warning to other mariners of what lay out there. Those ancient map images had begun, you could say, to frame my voyage as well. I carried them in my mind for the next few weeks, attempting to superimpose their gridded and mathematical lines and their grotesque monsters onto the slate gray and formless Arctic ice sea before me. Among the most fascinating examples of these maps, covered with all manner of fantastical creatures, is Elias Magnus's Carta Mar Marina. 
born in Sweden in 1490, a Laos, a Catholic priest, was working abroad in Gdansk when, in 1527, Protestants took over his homeland, resulting in his permanent exile. Alaus eventually settled in Rome and in time would be made the last Archbishop of Uppsala, a largely ceremonial title since he could not return to Sweden. Working as something of a cultural ambassador from Scandinavia, he wrote in exile, recreating his home in his writing and his great map. Alaus's map is huge, one of the largest charts in both physical size and the scope it covered. It was lost for centuries until discovered in 1886 by Oscar Brenner. A second copy, the only other extant, was found in 1962. The intervening time did not serve it well. 20th century scholars have long faulted Alaus's cartographical ignorance and his placing of the Arctic Circle at 90 degrees rather than at 66 degrees. As one critic wrote in 1949, the map is an interesting example of a compiler failing to understand the character of his materials and failing, falling into an error which was perpetuated by his successors. Mm -hmm. Important as was Alaus's work for the historian of the North, he scarcely emerges from a critical examination as a cartographer of great competence. But to look to Alaus for scientific accuracy would be to miss the point. In 1555, he produced his other great work, Historia de Gentubis Septentrionalis, a history of the northern peoples, literally people under the seven stars, meaning the constellation the Big Dipper. In it, he offered the first serious discussion of snowflakes, of which he wrote, It seems more a matter for amazement than inquiry why and how so many shapes and forms, which elude the skill of any artist you choose to name, are so suddenly stamped upon such soft, tiny objects. Alaus was interested as much in amazement as in competence, as much interested in wonder as in accuracy. Joseph Nigg's coffee table exploration of Alaus's map Sea Monsters, A Voyage Around the World's Most Beguiling Map, draws our attention away from the traditional function of the map, pulling the monsters out of the borders and into the center of the frame. It is, for Nig, one of the world's leading experts on fantastical animals, according to his bio. It is for him the geography and cartography that become inessential. The map he's interested in is not of land, but of beasts. Nig traces an imaginary voyage through Alaus's heavily populated seas, past a polypus, a creature with many feet which hath a pipe on its back, with his legs, as it were, by hollow places, dispersed here and there, and by his toothed nippers he fasteneth on every living creature that comes near him that wants blood. Or a sea swine. It had a hog's head and a quarter of a circle like the moon in the hinder part of its head, four feet like a dragon's, two eyes on both sides of, of his loins, and a third in his belly inkling towards his navel, Behind, he had a forked tail like to other fish commonly. Or a prister, a kind of whales 200 cubits long, very cruel. For to the danger of seamen, he will sometimes raise himself beyond the sail yards and cast such, such floods of waters above his head, which he had sucked in, that with a cloud of them, he will often sink the strongest ships or expose the mariners to extreme danger. And finally, the terrifying Xiphius. He hath as ugly a head as an owl, his mouth is wondrous deep as a vast pit where he terrifies and drives away those that look into it. His eyes are horrible, his back wedge fashion or elevated like a sword, his snout is pointed. It will swim under ships and cut them and the water may come in and he may feed on the men when the ship is drowned. 
Each monster is given a Laos's description, an inquiry into a Laos's inspiration and its subsequent legacy. The polypus, for example, is drawn as a 15-foot lobster, but Nick notes that its description more closely resembles an octopus. This is what makes a Laos's map, and by extension Nick's book, so fascinating. For all its basis in medieval bestiaries, the map is also a serious attempt to catalog the denizens of the deep. Alaus relied on oral legend, folklore, and his own memories, all of which he gathered and reported as faithfully as he could, a brother grim of, the, of oceanic mythology. As Nig points out, regardless of how fantastically the creatures are portrayed on the map, they are meant to represent actual marine animals. And at least some of them do. Alaus's map contains perhaps the first image of a whale nursing her calf, the first depiction of a real oceanographic feature, the Iceland Faroe Front, and the first mention of a narwhal, albeit under a different name. The unicorn, Alaus tells us, is a sea beast, having in his forehead a very great horn wherewith he can penetrate and destroy the ships in his way and drown multitudes of men. But by divine goodness hath provided for the safety of the mariners herein, for though he is a very fierce creature, yet he is very slow, that such as fear his coming may fly from him. In terms of the narwhal's behavior, Alaus was mostly wrong. It does not attack mariners, nor is it that slow. But while we know more than Alaus did, we don't know that much more. We don't know more about we know more about the rings of Saturn than we do about the narwhal, Barry Lopez writes in Arctic Dreams. We don't even know much about the name we gave it. Many claim that the word narwhal means corpse whale, so named for the animal's pale color, as though of a dead body. But Lopez and others dispute this etymology. What's clear is that with the, with the male unicorn's tusk growing as long as nine feet in length, it seems to defy all our standard rules of animal physiology. Lopez writes of seeing two narwhals in Lancaster Sound in 1982, a startling place to see animals so rare. The day when I saw them, I knew that no element of the Earth's natural history had ever before brought me so far so suddenly. It was as though something from a bestiary had taken shape, a creature strange as a giraffe. It was as if the testimony of someone I had no reason to doubt yet could not quite believe, a story too far-fetched, had been verified at a glance. We ourselves saw no narwhals on our voyage, but anyone who has would have no reason to dismiss Alaus's monsters so quickly. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast, second quarterly print journal special, and I've been Colin Marshall. You can pick the issue up now, and you can find out more about it, everything LARB does, and it's a lot, at lareviewofbooks.org. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.